0: You're listening to Build for Impact, brought to you by MarketScale, with your host, Daniel Hewitt. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Daniel Hewitt, your lead fellow host for Build for Impact, hosted by MarketScale. I'm really thrilled that you are joining us today because we're going to get a great dialogue in with one of my very long-time friends and uh, project collaborators, Dennis Berlin, the Chief Operating Officer at GLUMAC. Uh, GLUMAC is part of a global engineering uh, group. I'll let Dennis expand upon that. But uh, Dennis moved from Executive VP to uh, Chief Operating Officer just over a year ago, and he leads the firmwide operations, uh, focusing on establishment and management of technical and operational best practices um, in, the, in the green building world for a really great MEP firm. Dennis, welcome.
1: Thank you, Dana. appreciate you having me.
0: Dennis, um, share a, a blip on Glumac, uh, Dick Glumac, um, let's just touch down on Levi's, San Francisco, Las Vegas, all the stuff that Mr. Glumack did and share, um, your, your new, uh, umbrella firm that you're part of.
1: Great. So Dick Glumack founded the company, uh, 50 years ago. And unfortunately he just passed away this past year in San Francisco. So he was the founder of the company namesake and we started our first office in San Francisco. Uh, We've since expanded offices to the Pacific Northwest with offices in Portland and Seattle, uh, the central region, which we call Silicon Valley, Sacramento, San Francisco, uh, Southern California, which is where I reside. So we have offices in Los Angeles, Orange County, San Diego, and Las Vegas, and then also offices in Austin and Shanghai, where as you know, we had the first well-certified lead Platinum project in all of Asia, thanks to your support. So we were acquired uh, coming up on three years ago by Tetra Tech. Uh, Tetra Tech is the number one water, wastewater engineering firm in the world. And it, it's been a seamless transition. Um, they've focused on sustainability and water and a lot of government projects. And having a firm in Glumac that focuses on Sustainability and building infrastructure. It seemed like a, a natural fit and transition, and it's been working out really well over, ever since.
0: That's great. Um, and, you know, the reason I asked you to share about Teratech is I, I wanted our listeners to have an idea of some of the really big engineering firms globally taking a deeper dive into our first pillar, sustainability and aligning with or acquiring uh, other firms that help them get to that goal. So you and I go way back with USGBC, uh, more than 10 years, obviously. Um, give, us, give our, our listeners a, a little view on your thoughts on sustainability, Dennis.
1: So sustainability, again, is something that, as a company, we decided to focus on uh, just over 10 years ago. And since then, you know, we've been at the forefront of a lot of uh, lead uh, Living Building Challenge projects and well-certified spaces. Uh, I'm happy to announce that we actually maxed out our slots for the USGBC uh, Green Build in November this year, uh, and we're on a wait list for another one. So I think from, from the business side, one of the things that helps us attract quality engineers and energy analysts is the fact that we do focus on a lot of those projects, whether it's the uh, Ram Stadium or LA Football Club or Wilshire Grand. It, it seems like firms come to us because we have that sustainability mindset within not only the engineers, but the uh, leadership and a lot of the energy analysts we have throughout the firm. Unlike other engineering firms who focus mostly on the engineering, we always start on the energy side. You know, What can we reduce? do to reduce the uh, energy and carbon footprint of the buildings, uh, and then after that, only do we start doing a lot of the engineering design on projects.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I think that's great, and really, I think you gave us an introduction on our second uh, pillar, which is resiliency, and and really, I was uh, happy to collaborate with you and and the GluMac team on the project in Shanghai, which was Asia's very first Living Building Challenge project and very first LEED V4 Platinum project um, in designing the net zero water systems and in contributing to the net zero energy systems. And really, my thoughts are that when you design the sustainability and the building systems effectively, you really reduce your impact on resources and the planet which is a you know your initiation into a real re- resiliency solution your thoughts
1: uh, i agree with you. yeah a lot of the resilient design that we look at is you know how how do we have a more adaptive building to the environment and to some of the natural disasters that take place we could we could get into the covid uh, pandemic in a few minutes but specific to resilient design, you know, based on where our offices are located, we have different strategies for different locations. So in the Pacific Northwest and Northern California, it's more uh, typically flooding, earthquakes, wildfires, those kind of things. And Southern California, it's more heat waves and droughts and, you know, different strategies for resilient buildings. So for flooding, you know, we'll look at things like the critical system locations, having redundant systems, An earthquake, obviously, in California, you know, seismic concerns are big, big issues for buildings. Uh, For fires, you know, fire-resistant landscaping and brush clearing, so that's obviously one of the lead tenants to make sure we have fire-resistant and landscaping. Uh, Heat waves, you know, doing looking at things like siting and building orientation, shading, uh, super-installation, operable windows. Those kind of things, all kind of help make it a, a more resilient building.
0: I really like the fact that projects at Glumac, and and specifically you've been involved in, really take an additional focus on optimizing what can be done given the local conditions and in those tenants. Um, it, I'm thinking about a a wellness spa that you guys did and came up with a new solution for it, its hot water uh, by using solar thermal to, to get that done. Uh, I'm thinking about how you did uh, a thermal rejection in a high-rise building to eliminate HVAC needs for several floors of a building in Los Angeles, I'm thinking of some really cool MEP solutions that you guys had for a football stadium uh, in in Northern California. Uh, I'm, you know, I I can go on on some of those things. Can can you elaborate on? Is is this just ingrained in Glumac, or you know? Did you guys have exceptional talent uh, within the firm to, you know, to come up with these great solutions? You know, touch down on anything, databases, you know, hospitality, healthcare, care, what, whatever uh, you, you think.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I like to say it's we have the best people. I mean, the old adage goes, whoever feels the best players has the best team. And I think we really do uh, focus on that and a lot of the design and concepts are coming from our energy team. You know, we have a guy, Brian Stern, in our Los Angeles office that is at the forefront of you know, sustainability and you know, talking with the local municipalities on getting rebates and what we can do to you know, increase the value for our clients. And I think one of the things that helps separate us too is the fact that we have uh, commissioning agents at the firm so we work hand in hand, not only the design side, but also on the commissioning side to verify that the, we're meeting the owner's project requirements, that we're verifying the construction matches the design. And a lot of projects we do just the commissioning on, so we get a lot of lessons learned from the, what's happening in the field, and we try to apply that to our design. And as you know, Steve Strauss is our CEO, and he you know, grew up in the 70s with the oil embargo, and went to school at Berkeley. So that's probably the biggest reason why that's ingrained throughout the company under Steve Strauss's leadership.
0: Yeah, Steve is great. Uh, You know, I loved our interactions over the years. Um, I I think I'm gonna touch down on one last thing. And I guess you touched down on commissioning. You know, I'm actually uh, a professional commissioning provider. Uh, serve on the DOE's building envelope team to do building envelope commissioning stuff, moving that forward. How do you see the transition in building codes to require commissioning? And and you know you've been informed by seeing that work done within your firm. What what uh, progress are we making? What still needs to be done?
1: Uh, I think the advocacy of commissioning is, is a big thing, Uh, as you know, the codes are constantly changing and what the building departments are accepting or holding us accountable for are ever changing. I think, you know, there's a lot of commodity firms out there that just, you know, check the box and then there's other commissioning agents out there that really dive into the problems and get involved um, at a project level. You know, sometimes, What you don't want is a commissioning agent sitting in the back of the room taking notes and then just, you know, pointing fingers at people. What you want is a commissioning agent that's working with the contractors, working in the field, helping document some of these issues and working together on solutions. So I think, you know, commissioning is definitely critical for everybody moving forward to make sure. It it doesn't do any good if you design the best world-class building, most energy-efficient sustainability, and then they forget to connect economizers or... Um, commission the systems to make sure they're working properly and that happens a lot in resiliency of buildings you know a lot of the government projects that we work on have had that as a requirement for a long time so I think commissioning is definitely going to be impactful for building success in the future
0: yeah I, I really think that commissioning you know without going too deeply into it is kind of the same transparency about the, the, the building's operations and abilities. Uh, and, and is it really doing what the owner and, and the design team put together in the OPR, the owner's project requirements? Um,
1: well, you were, in, I mean, you would know as a professional commissioning agent yourself, you would know better than, than most, and especially being at the forefront for the USGBC and some of the projects they've had in Las Vegas. That's um, something that historically hasn't been focused on in that Las Vegas market and area.
0: Yeah, what's really interesting is, as we see each level of the IECC, the energy code, um, come in, the, the requirement for commissioning moves forward. So it started as being an optional thing. We've seen, you know, the energy use and the building performance, you uh, typically 10 to 20 percent better when a building is commissioned than an equal building that's not commissioned um and then we see even greater uh improvements in facilities that are existing buildings that we do uh audits and a retro commissioning exercise on and we're really starting to see that gap in performance from building envelopes uh, that aren't constructed or designed or detailed in a manner to uh, mitigate and, and opt- optimize their abilities to, you know, reduce energy needs. Uh, so, so that field is really moving forward. You know, we're seeing envelope commissioning r- recognized as an option in, in code uh, in our last cycle. Uh, next year, we're going to see it move into a mandated thing um, in, in certain building types. And I would imagine in three more years, we'll start to see it rolled in as, as a mandatory, just like building commissioning is going to be rolled in as a mandatory um, in, in 2021. Yeah,
1: I think commissioning, recommissioning, commissioning, all those things are are critically important. And as you know, in Clark County, for a lot of the hotels and casinos they implemented the you know every two years they need to test the generators they need to test the fire life safety system so it's you know clark county is probably at the forefront of a lot of that based on some of the tragedies they've had with fires in hotels and casinos but yeah different different agencies are freaking it up and i think it's going to be critical of success
0: that's an interesting correlation you just made you know life safety which is what drives most of the the aspects of the building code, has now, uh, tertiary, ter, tertiary early, excuse me, impacted um, energy efficiency in a good way. Um, y- y- your thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean,
1: we've seen. I, I don't want to say the number is fifty percent, but you know pretty close to 50% of the generators, you know, they don't recycle the fuel, they don't start up the generators. Uh, When it's mandated and required, obviously in buildings like hospitals where it's critical facilities, it's, you know, the more you test it, the better results you get. And when you have generators that have sat there for years and years without ever being started up or fired up, uh, by the time you have an event like a fire or a flood or some other emergency, it's too late. And then that's when, you know, commission gets put into the guidelines and the codes uh, more of a priority.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I think we're starting to see, and, and your firm has been deeply involved in this, um, with uh, other means to take care of stuff. So we're starting to see energy storage become a bigger piece in, in the uh, whole infrastructure, you know, going to microgrids and in other solutions to, to try and get you there. And we've done it, collaborated on it together, doing living building challenge projects. So I, I really am an advocate to see that continue to move forward because those things are going to cycle regularly and you won't run into the shortfalls and challenges from a generator. Uh, although, you know, I don't want to diminish the life safety attributes of the, of the fire system testing and other stuff that you, you just shared. Um, let's transition for a moment into an area of MEP, uh, you know, mechanical electrical plumbing, that's really been a big oversight. And that's materials transparency. Materials transparency. Sorry about that. Um, but materials transparency in MEP has not been a strong suit. What's your thoughts on that?
1: Well, going back to our good people, uh, we have a GLUMAC innovation program where we reach out to our staff and have them come up with some suggestions on how we could increase the environment in which we live in. And one of the ideas that one of our energy analysts came up with was uh, developing a methodology and toolkit for assessing the embodied carbon impact on systems that we design at GLUMAC. So, as you know, embodied carbon is the carbon emissions associated with the production of building products and materials. And, you know, at GLUMAC, we do pride ourselves on our ability to lower energy use and therefore carbon emissions as our clients' buildings. So, over the next 10 years, we're going to see that being more significant as we're mitigating the worst impacts of climate change. And we want to look at the production and installation of materials selected by our designers. Is we actually have a huge impact on that so we're starting to see a lot of embodied carbon requirements and rfps on projects including higher education clients corporate clients such as csu long beach disney and microsoft so what we like to do is we want to have a desired outcome of having a repeatable process for quantifying the embodied carbon of mep equipment specifically in a building and then create a database where we can use that to benchmark new projects so Again, that's something that we're doing to focus specifically on MEP equipment uh, and the
0: materials, material side. I think we got a new collaboration uh, brewing right now. Um, you know, so you did talk about embodied carbon, and Stacy Smedley, a good friend of of mine. You know Stacy as well. Is one of the people behind the EC3 tool. And and that's really changing and exposing another level of material transparency. Um, I think that the the transition in material transparency and ingredient reporting in plumbing, uh, especially, um, in in you know we're starting to see it in mechanical system components, in electrical components, um, because you can earn credit in well projects and in lead projects and Green Star and Brie and Brie M and all the systems in the planet for for additional material transparency for those parts and and systems. So I I really applaud some of the firms that are starting into it and doing it. You know, I know I've dialogued with Dakin and Carrier and Mitsubishi and uh you know plumbing manufacturers like Kohler and Sloan um about what they're doing what was really impressive uh recently like as last fall was the first deep dive discussion i had with electrical uh systems materials providers about their desire to finally get in there um I, I think that this tool or, or the, the trend that you're looking at is going to be a really good one. You know, the embodied carbon. Because, you you know, we do, with Global Green Tag, uh, we do a carbon rate. We do, uh, we just had our product health declaration fully recognized in USGBC lead uh, V4 and V4.1 uh, globally. As a, as a certification path for for products, and you know one of the additional things that that uh, certification does is it shares the long term health attributes for the the end user and you know, the person in the building, the person using the product, uh, which is which is really cool. I think the stuff that you're uh, sharing about the embodied carbon. Can run parallel, and we do a carbon rate that that basically plugs into the EC3 tool to to help uh, evaluate embodied carbon.
1: Yeah, there's definitely some overlay. You know, one of the examples we're looking at a uh, HVAC embodied carbon breakdown for uh, an Art Rudkin school that we designed. So we found out 32% of it was in the chillers, 11% in the ductwork, uh, 27% local air handling units. Only five percent on the boiler, so we're looking at an entire project and seeing how it breaks out, and then we're also comparing, you know, that with another high school that we designed to look at, you know, one to get a four-pipe coil system with doas, and the other one's a package dx system. So, trying to see what design strategies we could uh, use to reduce the carbon imprint on buildings, but again, I think that's something that would overlay
0: well with what you guys are working on. Yeah, really cool. So let's move into our last pillar, <clears throat> which you alluded to, um with your reference on COVID and pandemics. And that last pillar is wellness. And in really uh on that one, I think that as an as an engineer and predominantly MEP firm, you guys have a lot of potential positive contributions to to all these facilities by the systems you design and implement and even the basis of design stuff you come back with to help um, improve people's comfort uh, i'm going to hand the floor back to you to elaborate
1: so i'd say the biggest in i mean this is this, the pandemic that's happening now with the COVID-19 is similar to how MEP engineers got pushed to the front, forefront when LEED first came about. Um, in the past, we were the last people kind of on the design of a building. And now with what's going on in COVID-19, we've probably done 200 presentations on the impact of the HVAC systems, the filtration, the ventilation requirements, how, Strategies for bathrooms, you know, concerns over elevators. So we're we're probably doing two dozen what I would call readiness surveys or return to work surveys uh, on buildings. Uh, we're working with several large tech clients on pilot programs to come up with strategies on how to test particles in in the air uh, before the HVA system, how it distributes throughout the HVA system. So we've we've literally done a few hundred presentations to you know, developers to, you know, big companies like JLL and Apple and Google, and um, they really are interested because they care about the safety of their their staff and people have justifiable concerns on returning to the office. And you know, we've been working remotely probably for four months. I imagine most of the people listening have probably uh, experienced the same thing. And then, and what can we do as engineers to reduce the, Potential transmission of the virus. So, where it complements well with lead and well strategies. Obviously, lead encourages outside air, MERV 13 and better filters, operable windows, uh, air quality monitoring, all the things that we've tried to push for the last 10, 20 years. Now, people are actually starting to listen to. And if you take that a step further, you know, with well buildings, that also require and encourage. You know, UVC uh, as an enhancement to air filtration systems, humidity control. We're finding um, a lot of impact in the not so much in the West Coast, but on the East Coast. Um, germs transmit well in low humidity, so we need to start figuring out how do we increase humidity design in projects. Um, again, increasing the airflow, you know, health risk assessments, on-demand health services, you know, health awareness education programs. So. A lot of those things are starting to finally filter into our design. So um, that's, I mean, we went from building-based engineers, meaning, you know, code minimum requirements to now, you know, well-certified fit buildings that focus on occupant health and safety and design strategies that we could utilize uh, to get the certification for the building, to make the occupants feel safer and to um, benefit the public, so, and I think that's what most engineers wanted to do in the first place. You know, they want to solve problems. Um, they like working with math and calculus, and they want to make a difference, and now uh, we really do have that ability to utilize all those tools that we've been trained on for years, and where in the past, to be honest, you know, we haven't been using that as much, so I think that's one of the biggest things where we can make an impact, on buildings and occupants and to help people get through this pandemic.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think I, I've shared in the past on one of our other episodes, uh, a project where we used UVC for both the HVAC systems and the water systems as a, as a means of, you know, uh, sterilization, pathogen control, uh, what, whatever terminology you wanted to use. And in that one project that I shared on, was so successful that the occupants, the people working there, wouldn't leave and go home. In um, in that threw our energy balance off for for net zero energy. And and you you know you had to <laughs> set up a rule where they got kicked out. They could stay fourteen hours max. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's true.
1: Yeah, and we have the as you know, we have the monitors that anybody can look on their iPhone to see what the indoor air quality is outside the building, what it is inside the building. Um, we we've been lucky. We've been working with a few doctors. Uh, one is Dr. Bill Bonfleff. Uh, he's a professor at Penn State and is the Ashray COVID-19 Task Force chairman. So as we see, you know, different communications from, you know, the World Health Organization and CDC and others. Uh, he, he works with us closely to uh, craft our message, uh, to make sure it's in line with ASHRAE and to look at actual case studies on what actually does make a difference and what doesn't make a difference. So, you know, some filtration, you know, carbon filters are good for smell, but not so much for, you know, diseases and other things. So there's a lot of case studies out there. There's a lot of information out there. and. Uh, Key things that we focus on are, you know, the lighting, the enhanced HVAC, what you can do in restroom strategies for exhaust, uh, obviously touchless technologies, and we actually have a couple of patents uh, going on for elevators, you know, using UV uh, to clean all the air after people get out. You know, so there's a lot of different s- strategies we're looking for ventilation and for UV lighting uh, that seem to be uh, less impactful and, and harmful for people.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. You know, this talk has been uh, a, a higher engineering, a higher technical focus than, than my others uh, prior to it. And, and that's kind of refreshing because we got into the building science portion of what we do and, and how that can contribute to Build for Impact. Um, closing comments, Dennis, I'm, I'm going to give the floor back to you. Um, thoroughly enjoyed our time.
1: No, I would just you know appreciate the opportunity. I think communicating some of these strategies and understanding what actually is impactful and what's not impactful. Um, I think, as we push the envelope from an engineering perspective to get that information out, uh, I think the building owners, uh, by necessity, are reaching out to us more because they want to have some kind of a checklist that you know we've reviewed their bathrooms, we've reviewed their <laughs> lobby areas. We're, we're looking at design strategies to make it buildings as safe as possible. So, you know, we've kind of transitioned, you know, from sustainability and resiliency, uh, which are obviously key uh, to tracking carbons through materials and transportation and now wellness. It, it, we really do see the transition from just, a, you know, maybe a lead scorecard to a well-certified building. And we think that's gonna be uh, very significant for the upcoming years as COVID-19 and and other potential viruses uh, make it into buildings, into the environment. I
0: I couldn't agree more. As you know, I served on the International Well-Building Institute's COVID Task Force, and I'm gonna continue working to, you know, see that we do the best that we possibly can to give really good buildings that help contribute to wellness, healthiness, and, of course, the environment and resource responsibility uh, for people. Dennis, uh, thank you again so much. Uh, this is Daniel Heward, thanking our listeners for tuning in to Build for Impact. Again, send us questions, comments, and what you'd like to see featured in the future. Have a great day, Al.